Hello and welcome to another episode of CryptoCast. I'm James Burney, a partner at Garner Cook, specializing in fintech and financial services. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Henry Price, head of crypto and digital assets at GSEX, an advanced digital assets and currencies exchange and brokerage solution for institutional and professional clients. Hi, Henry. It's great to have you on. Hi, thank you for having me. So I, I think that the first point really is just for those who are used to more traditional exchanges, how would you say that a, a more crypto asset exchange would, would differ compared to more traditional exchanges people may, may be used to? So I think you're falling into a couple of camps there. So obviously in the early days, you would have people like, oh, well, you know, the major exchanges, Coinbase, Kraken, Binance. Those, they come at it from a different angle. So one of the obvious uh, differences, they come from a technical point of view or a computer pro- programming kind of view. So until recently, they didn't actually have proper matching engines and, and stuff. They kind of built it themselves. They kind of reinvented the wheel, as it were. So, uh, and they also don't kind of fall under any standard regulatory framework. Whereas the exchanges that are coming in now, for example, like GSEX, we, we, we're basically the same as a standard FX brokerage, but we've added uh, crypto into the mix. So from a client side, they will basically receive crypto price feeds and trading as they would any other traditional instrument. So I think as crypto exchanges kind of develop, they had to deal with two things. One was the custody elements, which again, there's hit and miss on that, you know, given the number of hacks over the years, and also the trading, uh, you know, matching engines and actually trading the instruments. And uh, I mean, now I know Bits, Bitstamp uh, just got a NASDAQ type matching engine and, and all the others have kind of come up to par with that. And then the custody, they've kind of organized and ensured that. So they're coming at from basically a crypto native and then other exchanges coming into play now are coming from a traditional finance with the add-on, if that makes sense. It, it does, and that's really interesting. I think, I mean, one of the interesting things we've been seeing now is the rise of more traditional finance type models. And actually we're seeing a rise in kind of middlemen turning up, which sit between investors or participants and the actual crypto itself. Do you see this the rise of the middleman as a kind of as a good thing, or do you think actually it's negative, and do you think it's sustainable in, in the medium to long term? So, from my personal background, I'm actually a physicist turned quant turned finance uh, person. So, from my perspective, Bitcoin was originally set out to basically remove middlemen. If if that's if people's understanding on this podcast, you know, it was it was designed that as a peer-to-peer money in the case of Bitcoin or a peer-to-peer um, protocol. So the fact that you're now adding all these guys in between, uh, you know, it kind of goes at odds with the philosophy and, it, and it, that's where kind of the old world of crypto sits. But people in traditional finance, I would say, are, are more conservative. They want to deal with uh, either the same people or at least have a familiarity from the old world. So what you see now is a lot of custodians. And I think custodians make a lot of sense in the sense of there's, there's been a lot of hacks and, and uh, it's really, really not worth risking self-custody if you can avoid it. So they, they want to deal with an insured kind of compliant custodian because, you know, the primary problems for them entering the market is they perceive regulatory risk, obviously, hacking risk. They don't understand the technology and, uh, they, you know, and, and so regulatory risk. Uh, custody risk and then something like a trading transparency risk I think are the three big ones so what they've kind of built is an ecosystem on top where your assets is kind of held securely 
insured, which is what they want, ticks the boxes for, for a lot of the kind of old traditional finance guys. They want a, basically a clearing and settlement uh, part. So they want the counterparty risk to be reduced. So between two venues, we can settle up and, and net as well, like we did in, in, in traditional FX or other finance. And uh, yeah, it just just needs to tick the boxes from from those those major points. Uh, but that does introduce a bunch of people who are perhaps are not actually necessary, but it is necessary for them to feel that they they're trading. Um, for example, even by a fixed protocol, that that could be considered non-standard enough to, for them not to trade. They really really want to trade uh, with all the same hooks as as they've been used to. Great. So that, that's really interesting because I think one of the things we're also seeing from a kind of more legal and regulatory perspective is sometimes a push to to deal with things a little bit more and try and make them a bit more regulated like you would get in the traditional sector. We've seen regulators do that. Is there anything in particular you're seeing which is impacting crypto businesses, which is either causing concern or, or, or which you think are great are good developments and should be encouraged? Yeah, so I think there's two major pieces uh, of interest. So the new FCA um, crypto asset registration uh, started to involve, well, obviously my firm, but also involving custodians and bringing custodians who I'm not sure were considered uh, either gatekeepers or, or risk of the AML side have kind of been brought in as, uh, I would say, a gatekeeper of, of, that, uh, of that side. So the custodians now kind of have seems like they have to responsibility the regulators to kind of report incoming outgoing and mixing you know any kind of the, the funds the mixing of funds uh which is quite interesting and then that kind of feeds into the the travel rule framework which if you're not aware of the travel rule well everyone's usually aware of the travel rule in, in banking it basically means when you move from uh you know financial institution to financial institution transfer you need to basically attach uh you know a bit of information about the client uh as it gets forwarded on so so things are a bit less uh Less murky. So, in the case of uh, crypto custodians, if you have an omnibus wallet, which most exchanges operate under that, lots of different transactions go into the omnibus wallet. And at this point, it, it especially if it's pseudo anonymous, you don't know the the incoming wallet. It it, it is not transparent. It is basically mixing. It's a type of. I mean, it is a mixer, but that is literally mixing funds. And then they get forward onto sort of a venue to 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 maybe like an LP, a liquidity provider, to um to sort of match the trades or, or sell off on behalf of the client. Now, what the travel rule would essentially consist of in, in this situation is attaching in, inbound transactions to a client uh, directly. So rather than mixing things together, if a regulator comes and asks, you know, which part of the Bitcoin or which part of the incoming transaction is, um, is who, which belongs to, to which client, we, we can answer that question. So I think that the first development is basically take a note or at least attach um, an identity to every inbound transaction and then you know as a rule genuinely just only send funds back to that inbound uh, inbound uh, wallet whitelisted wallet i think those are the first major start to uh, kind of bringing it to the standard framework if that makes sense it does i mean i think it, it's interesting because i think it's possible broader regulatory policy of, of just bringing transparency increasingly into crypto, um, which I think creates interesting tensions in relation to things like privacy coins, which are kind of designed to the exact opposite. Um, yeah, so I think that was one of the instant 
no-nos. I remember even a couple of years ago with, with regulatory, uh, you know, if you wanted to be taken uh, into the traditional finance side as, as little as, as it was able back in the time, you would definitely prohibit privacy coins. And you, But the actual KYT, you know, the know your transaction, the, um, you know, things like chain analysis, elliptic, that can do kind of due diligence on coin and give you a rating, whether it's related to sort of a dark web or a, uh, any any of kind of the, the dangerous terrorist financing stuff. That That is actually probably more transparent than cash. So from my side, as long as the regulators can understand it and we can bring it into the framework, it could be more, the provenance of these funds could actually be uh, even more uh, well-checked than, than traditional cash. So I think eventually the regulators may come to agree with, with that. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting because one of the things you get is, is it's almost can be almost too transparent in the sense that there are certain rules and procedures in place in relation to cash, which means that you can do your due diligence and move on. And you could almost get a disadvantage in the crypto space because you can go back further. There's a question mark whether you should go back further. And there's a sort of assumption that because you can do something, it's, it's the right thing to do. And, and actually, that means it's actually be much harder for, for things like crypto than, than traditional models. Um, just more broadly, I mean, do you, what, what do you see as the future of crypto? I know if you speak to the kind of the Bitcoin keenies, they're just going to, it's going to go up forever and we'll become multimillionaires. But do, what do you see as, as the future? Do you think it's going to be around digitizing assets or do you think it's going to be around things like Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or do you think it's just no, you can't tell at the moment? I think, um, I think, Basically, what's happened is the traditional world has kind of taken notice of of what's going on in the space, and they've gone basically for the the two biggest asset plays, which is Ethereum and Bitcoin. There are people, I would say, more buccaneer style who are going for, you know, the DeFi space, which I hear more and more about, and people are definitely interested in in involving themselves in that. I think the main obstacle with a lot of the DeFi returns is the KYC; it can't really be performed on some of these pools. I think that's coming. Um, but I would say that the the middleman style stuff is is still something that can be removed or, or improved upon. So there's a few interesting DeFi, uh, I would say, facilities or whatever you want to call it that can basically, you know, perform exchanges between between uh, different assets, uh, token swaps, and these kind of things. And you can also um, maybe do automatic margining via smart contracts or or pretty much any of the standard um, standard. Uh, which say margining swaps, all these things can basically start to be automated via smart contract. I think once the gas fees go down, I think it will definitely find its way uh, in the general market. And if it doesn't find its way on a public blockchain, it will certainly be implemented, you know, via the central bank cryptocurrencies or, or one of the more kind of closed or private blockchains. So I think the technology is here to stay. It's just it will sit in one of those three public permissioned or, or private blockchains. But I, I do think Ethereum has done the Ethereum's contracts have gone quite quite far now that it, it could and be an interesting space. I mean, I might be just, just worth just a bit of, of let's just explaining quickly what it is that people mean by DeFi because you know I've seen serious DeFi players and I've had people who go DeFi just way of not complying with local rules. If you're serious, I mean, and, and everything in between. So I just thought it might be helpful if you just give give your view of, of what it is people actually are getting at when they're talking about setting up DeFi type projects. Yeah, so I think the DeFi side, I think, has a tied in either technology risk or a counterparty risk more than more than others. So if you're looking at, say, staking yields, I wouldn't put them under 
standard DeFi. I mean, they are decentralized finance, but the, the yields are well-defined. They're kind of protocol level yields, like Ethereum 2 yields. Whereas the other stuff which is being built it, is like Compound and, and these loans and DAI. They kind of have a bit of an interesting... So, so DAI is basically a, a stabilized uh, cryptocurrency. So it mimics the dollar, but it does it via the Ethereum as the underlying. Uh, it's just in, and then the whole project generally falls under stuff with MakerDAO. So I think these debt instruments or peer-to-peer -peer loan instruments, uh, those are kind of what I'm hearing is people are interested in that. I think it's going to be a while before they're fully compliant, but I think you know the ability to access uh, liquidity and and also um, loans in you know kind of in a decentralized way, in an instant way, via a smart contract, is more appealing than than having to go to uh, uh, you know, over the counter to 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 meet traditional finance individuals. So if if that becomes a liquid pool, I think I could see things moving in that direction. And again, automating margin calls—that's been spec. I mean, there's quite a few papers on that even in 2017. So the ability to automatically margin or collect margin via you know crypto stuff—it it means the margin period of risk gets reduced. You're not kind of reliant on on the EOD reconcile. And and if people do not meet those the, the closeout and, and the fallout from that it is quite a long-winded process to get to get everything reconciled so if we can have an automated system that's public you know where the funds are you know which ones are in play which ones are available i think that is also super interesting and i think there's a few custodians and a few networks that are implementing this so they can lock funds so that you know which ones are in play and available for you to collect for margin and then they can unlock them or withdraw them and send them back so it's basically Reducing counterparty risk, I think, uh, surprisingly, uh, cryptos can reduce counterparty risk if if they're stable and implemented correctly. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, the thing I always find quite interesting is the fact that a lot of the use cases revolve around lending. And, you know, my, my concern is always just making sure we don't fall within the scope of regulated consumer lending, which is easy to do w without realising it. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a longer haul for that. It's not something I personally endorse at the moment, but yeah, these are these. Yeah. Yeah, that's been absolutely fascinating. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with Henry, you can reach him out to him over LinkedIn, or his email address is hp at gc.exchange. Yes. Henry, fantastic having you on. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to our latest podcast. Gunnar Cook has a market-leading blockchain, crypto assets and DeFi team, providing legal advice across the whole of the blockchain ecosystem. Our members have been heavily involved in helping shape the legal and regulatory framework for blockchain and crypto assets from the start, meaning that we have an intuitive understanding of our clients' needs and can provide focused, pragmatic advice at predictable cost. For more information, please visit our website. Thank you again.